edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas with episode 419. And coincidentally, it is April 19th, 2010, or 419-10. Uh, and these numbers have been correlating through the 400s in April for me uh, too closely here and confusing me. So I'll try to keep those things right. But I do know one thing. It's a Monday because I just had a weekend, and that was uh, pretty cool to have a weekend, except for the fact that it rained, and then it rained, and then it rained. But it didn't rain that much on a, a Saturday. Just a quick uh, update with friends here. What did I do Saturday? I went out with my good buddy Hal Dodd on Lake Joe Pool, and we uh, brought home about 31 white bass or sand bass, depending on what you call them, between us, and uh, split the fillets. So Saturday was a good day. Sunday was a washout. It's still wet and nasty and muddy outside, so can't get much gardening done today. But it should be uh, sunny and beautiful all through the week and then rain again on the weekend. So uh, that's the mode we're in, and that's the uh, typical April mode here in Texas. Anyway, what's the show going to be about today? Today's show is going to be about you, your feedback, your input, your commentary, and your questions. But I'm trying to change these shows up a little bit, make them a little more interactive. Instead of doing one long show of just your calls or one long show of just your questions, I'm going to bring in a couple phone calls today. I'm going to bring in some stuff off of YouTube today. I'm going to bring in your questions today. I'm going to bring in some new stuff that I've dug off on my own. I'm going to try to make these Monday shows a little bit more variety, and they'll probably start going a little bit longer. Hey, I have the time to give it to you, and uh, if you don't get to listen to me all in one swallow, you can always uh, you know, listen to me the next time you get a chance. So if they go a little bit longer, they go a little bit longer. Anyway, that's what today is going to be about. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. I'm going to tell you about how Citigroup is making money now, return money from the bailout, so is that working? I'm going to ask a great question about credit cards that leads me to an answer I never even thought of before. Uh, I am going to talk to you about, let's see, what else is on the agenda today? Uh, we have all kinds of things coming up today, uh, including uh, how is money created? That's another question I got. So that's where I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to bring in uh, some stuff off of YouTube from Chris Martinson to help you out with that. I have information about the Icelandic volcano and what it's doing to Europe's food supply. I have some interesting information from you about who actually feeds the world. Is it the industrial farms or the peasant farmers? The answer lies somewhere in between, but slides to a side that maybe you would have thought of before. I have questions about young graduates and what should they do with their money? Should they buy land and what have you? I have questions from people asking, hey, how do I put this all together and uh, make it cohesive? How do I set my next priority? So a really cool show today. Sorry about the pause there, but I got distracted uh, by the dog trying to kick my microphone lead out of the computer. Anyway, so that's what today's show is going to be about. But before we do that, let's go ahead and knock out the housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you, and I mean that, folks. Please make sure you're doing two things whenever uh, you're buying anything for your prepping needs. Number one, check our sponsors out. See if you can do business with them. Number two, if you're in the MSB, check all the vendors out there that give you a discount before you buy. Use your discounts. More on the MSB in a second. Sponsor of the day, number one, MERS-radio.com. Again, M-U-R-S-radio.com. What is MERS Radio? It is an unlicensed uh, uh, radio frequency, so you can use it without a license. Uh, but there's about five frequencies and a bunch of sub-frequencies between them. So you get a little bit more privacy, not perfect privacy, but a little bit more privacy than you would maybe with uh, GRM or uh, Family Services Radio 
uh, GRSM that you would get from the store. But what's really cool is they have these motion detectors and base units that all work together. So what happens is now you have handhelds that you can use when you're moving around your property. You have a base station that always stays in plugged in at the house so that there's always power there and you can always be listening to any whatever frequency you're monitoring. The last thing that's really cool, though, is you put these motion sensors out on your property, and if something moves through that area, you hear something like this come over your uh, handheld or your base station or both. Alert Sector 1. Alert Sector 1. And you know that something is acting over in that area. That allows you to take security and secondary communications and combine them at a very affordable cost. It's been a godsend for me here. Uh, not so much for security in Arlington, uh, because I've got so much stuff around me, but just by monitoring my gates, it's told me whenever my dog's trying to escape, and that saved me probably a lot of heartache by now. Uh, it also does give me security, because I have the front door monitored as well. So it's pretty cool stuff. Check it out. Next up today, ready-made resources. Delivers what it promises. Ready-made resources for all of your prepping needs. Whatever you're looking for, I can tell you this, they have it. Make sure you download their solar catalog. And I'll tell you what, great people to do business with. I've had some direct communications with the owner, and uh, he's he's told me how much he appreciates you, the audience. And he's uh, he's been really uh, open about some of the things that they're working on and about just being willing to help me if I ever need it. I haven't really needed it yet, but he's made some offers to me. If you ever really need help, I'll take care of you uh, and do what I can to help out. And, and that means a lot to me, that you have a sponsor that doesn't just see it as a business relationship, that realizes he's part of a community and is willing to reach out to me and say, hey, if you're ever in a, in a, a situation where you need some help, I've got, and I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is, but I've got some help available to you. Uh, again, I haven't needed it, but just knowing that it's there, the sentiment means a lot. That's the kind of person you're dealing with when you're dealing with ready-made resources. And to be fair to all of our sponsors, that's really how they all are. It's amazing, not just the group that I've brought together in an audience here with the show, but the sponsors that have showed up. And, folks, we haven't sold them. They've, they've come here looking to be part of this community. All right, moving on from there. You know, make sure you check out our gear shop. I want to tell you this. I talked to Sister Wolf last week. I think there's 12 challenge coins left. In the last run, if you want a challenge coin, you better get it, and you better get it fast. We might be running a special, but after today, there may be no challenge coins after I said that. But uh, go to the gear shop, check that out. If you're picking up a challenge coin, get a shirt, get a hat, get a patch, do something else. Uh, let's, let's help make the gear shop successful. Remember, uh, that really is the, the operation of TW and Wolf from the forum. I take a little piece of that as a license agreement, but basically that's their standalone business unit that I've helped them set up. So please support them because they are amazing in what they do to help support us at the forum. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. I'll leave it at that today, but you get a bunch of really great stuff and you support the show for 20 cents an episode. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the things that I, I really want to talk about today, which is your questions, your thoughts, your comments, your concerns. The first question comes to us uh, from a guy, and he's saying, hey, Jack, what do you think about making your own solar panels? Is it feasible? Is it possible? Uh, can you do it? Uh, mainly because, you know, setting them up is not that hard. You can really learn everything you need to know about setting up solar panels in a day from a book. And then it's pretty much piecing things together. But what happens if we get into a situation where uh, – where you can't just do that. And this question comes to us from a gentleman we'll just call Garrett. And um, Garrett and everybody else, here's how I feel about this. Making solar panels is not that hard. I bought some information online. Um, in fact, I'll put a link to the product that I've purchased, uh, and it's actually available at the survival thesurvivalpodcast.com anyway, um, in my resources list. 
that tells you how to build your own windmills and tells you how to build your own solar panels. And it's good to know, but it's also a limited thing that you can do. Building a panel itself is not that hard. Building a cell is a different story altogether. And you're down to the silicon level there. And I really can't help you with how to build your own solar cells. And if anybody has any resources on that, love to see them. But the information that I purchased online, and it was worth the 50 bucks, uh, told me basically how to go out and buy cells, specifically going out onto uh, eBay and buying slightly damaged cells with some chips in them and things like that, and how to wire them together and build a panel out of cells. So you can do that, and I think it's a valuable skill to learn. You can certainly put together some panels for far less than you could buy them for. You may have a little bit of an efficiency disadvantage, but if you can build three panels for the price of one, and each panel runs at, let's say, 80% of the efficiency of buying one, well, then you've got a definite gain in your total output. But, again, your footprint's larger. So you, you have to kind of weigh those things. And with the windmills, it's pretty cool the way that you can build windmills and uh, use uh, electric motors and things like that. I think that wind has greater potential, though, in a total shit-hit-the-fan scenario where we're, we're low on resources. Because I think for most people, with solar, you're either going to find solar panels or you're going to find solar cells and use them to build panels. But you ain't going to start with pieces, parts, and no cells and create cells. It's a, it's a pretty complicated technology. If it wasn't, solar would cost a lot less. So it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to know. But it, it's limited in that the creation of the silicon itself is uh, is really beyond the range, I think, of most of us. Garrett also asked me another question. Usually I don't do two from one person, but I thought this was a great question, so I'm going to take this today as well. He's getting ready to graduate, and uh, I'm not sure if he's graduating college or high school. Let me see if he included that for me. Um, I'm not sure. I really am not sure by reading his, his thing, which one he's graduating, but I don't think it really matters. The question, I'm going to give you the same answer to either one, and that is when a person graduates and they're kind of young and maybe you didn't even graduate, maybe you're just kind of out there and you're a young person right now, you're not going to go to college, or if you didn't finish high school, I think you should go back and finish, but let's say even you're in that state, and you're kind of moving on toward a career, but you don't have a lot of money yet, you're in that starting out phase, what his question is, is should I buy some land uh, just for camping and, and, and hanging out on and, and to have it as an investment, uh, even if I'm nowhere near ready to build a house yet. And my answer to that question is, if you can do it, even with some debt, if you can keep the debt to a five-year debt, uh, debt stream, yes. I would rather see you go out and buy a piece of land for, let's say, $25,000. Raw land you know, may, uh, will really, really be a good idea for that first piece to at least have the ability to have electric put on it from the city and phone put on it from the city. If you have to do a well and a septic system, that's not anywhere near as complicated as dealing with being off-grid altogether with electricity. But if you want to go off-grid, that's okay too. But let's say you go out and you find a piece of land for between twenty dollars and $30,000 as a young person, and you start making payments on it, and you're smart, and you come in with a decent down payment, and you say, I want to pay this property off in five years or less. Well, you're going to have a payment roughly equivalent to a car payment. All right. Now, what most people do in that state is they, they get through school and they feel like, damn it, I've worked hard, I, I deserve a nice car, and they go out and they buy a nice car. I'm telling you to go out and buy a piece of crap car. Go out and buy a car for $2,000, $3,000, something that's going to get you by for your first five years in life, and make the payments on the land versus a car. 
Here's why. You make payments on your car for five years. Now, odds are you'll trade it in in two and a half or three, and you'll lease it, or you might as well have leased it because you'll never actually own it. You'll go through two cars, and you'll end up with all the money paid out, and you'll end up with a first car or a second car that's worth less than the money you put into it. End of story, the end done. Cars are a losing proposition. That's why I put them lower on the priority of things that you're going to bring into your life. If you do the same thing with the land, five years from now, you own a piece of land free and clear. If it's not developed, your property tax uh, liability on it is probably extremely low. You've got a cool little place of, for a bug-out location if you buy it just a little bit outside of the city, and I would expect that you would buy it at least an hour or two outside of the city. You've got a cool place to camp when you're going to go kick back and relax. Maybe you buy yourself a nice little beat-up old travel trailer because just, you're just a single guy. You put that out there or you drag it out there whenever you go out there, and you've got a place where you can have recreation without a lot of expense, so you're not blowing money. So the way I view it is that most people in that bracket are going to spend twenty-five dollars to $30,000 over a five-year period on a loan on something, and all I'm telling you to do is move the place you're going to spend the money. Because one is building towards your future, and the other thing is only building your credit report. And all that does for you is make it more likely for you to get into debt in the future. The other side of this is five years from now, if you decide that this is a place you want to live permanently and you want to build and you own the land, it's going to be much easier for you to get financing to build a home if you want to go ahead and get a mortgage, which is one of the debts I'm okay with. The other side of it, though, is, hey, man, you're young. you got a lot of opportunity out in front of you. You could be out working part-time for different construction companies, wherever you can find the work over the next few years. And by the time you're done with that, you might have know how to do 90% of the work to build your own first house. And for the 10, 10, 10 to 20% you can't do, you can act as your own general contractor. And maybe five years from now, instead of having a piece of crap jalopy car and an apartment that you can barely afford the rent on, you might have a paid-for house or damn close to a paid-for house. And it might not even be a done house. You might have it built out to one or two bedrooms, and you might eventually want it to be a big four-bedroom house. Well, if you're building it yourself, if you're controlling the construction, you could build it with additions in mind. And it's much easier to add on to a house if it was built to be added on in the first place versus it was a site-built home, it was done by a contractor, it's finished, and now you want to add on. Then it usually looked like, you know, you could tell it was an add-on. So I just think it's a much better uh, play altogether. So uh, with that, we'll go on to uh, the next question. Before I move on, though, I have uh, one last thing to say on this subject, and that is I'm going to do a little impersonation of a televangelist here, not because I have any supernatural connection, but just when you speak to a large enough audience, you know certain things are true. So I'm going to speak to somebody out there, probably several somebody's out there. There's people out there right now that are saying, God, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was 19 or 21 or 22, because you're 35 or 45 right now. And you're thinking, if I would have done that then, imagine where I would be today. Well, you know what, folks? You live to be 80, 90, 100 years old. you got a lot of time left. Uh, even if you're 60, you got a, time, a lot of time left. So I'm going to speak to some people out there right now. That You know what you're doing right now? You're thinking about buying a new vehicle. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying ask yourself this question first. Would I be better off driving what I have or buying a used vehicle and financing this twenty, thirty, dollars or $40,000 on land over the same period of time? Just ask yourself the question. Find the answer for yourself. Do what you think is right for you. That's what I always tell you in the end. You have to make your own decisions on these things. But I'll tell you what, it's a question you should be asking yourself at any point you're making a large purchase, especially if you're not a landowner yet or especially if you only have one property. 
uh, and you're looking for that second property to be something in your life. For everything that we bring into our lives, generally we have to give something up. Sometimes it's a car. And I'll tell you what, I don't care what the economy does. Even if the economy makes land worth less than it's worth today in five years, it will still hold more value than a car ever will or a truck ever will. The value in the vehicle is what it can do for you over the next five years. The value in land and real estate is a lasting value. It's a store of value every bit as much or more than precious metals because it has the ability not just to be exchanged but to provide for you. What I mean by that is if you have sitting on a big stockpile of silver and gold, that's great. You can cash it in for currency based on its current valuation. If you're sitting on land, you can use, you can keep it, and even though you're holding it, it can still produce for you. Something to think about. Um, <clears throat> next question after that is uh, another interesting one. Guy emails me and basically says, how do you put this all together? And what he says is, I'll just read part of his question. I feel so overwhelmed that I'm having a hard time bringing it all together. We have a large pantry started uh, with about two weeks of food. We grow veg in two raised beds, which we produce a lot. Uh, we're in the process of planning edible landscaping. What's next? Do you have a checklist that can be used to work towards your goals? And do you have a sample of one? Thanks. And the guy's name is Graham. And the answer is I don't have a checklist. And what I might do, though, this is a great question, I might put together a tool so that you can create your own checklist. Before I even answer the spirit of the question, let me state something that's important that we all understand, and I try to say it all the time, and it's part of my ten tenets of modern survivalism. I can't tell you what your plan is. I can't tell you what your priorities are. I can't even tell you how much of a certain thing that you should have. I can give you rough guidelines, but you have to take it from there. What happens in survival-minded people that, that kind of come into this? Like you were totally asleep one day, and then you wake up the next day, and you realize how dangerous a world we live in, is you go to the extreme, right? These are the people that, and I'm not saying that Graham's doing this. I'm just saying this happens, and everybody does it to a degree. I'm giving you the extreme degree at first. People around Y2K freaked out. People around 2012 right now are starting to freak out. And they're, you know, like they're building credibility around the earthquakes that happened and a volcano went off. Like, we don't always have earthquakes and volcanoes. You see what I'm saying? Uh, but they're building that up and it hypes up and it, and it gets harder and harder and harder to separate fact from fiction. You know, Y2K, big time hype. So what happens is people go out and they start listening to supposed experts. And experts say, well, you need to have one year of food and you should have it in uh, long-term storables and pallets and you got to have this and you should have a bomb shelter and you should have two generators, and, and whatever. And they come up with this huge laundry list of things that you should have. They say, go buy all that stuff. And you I don't have no money. They say, buy, buy what you can. Here's a list and priority in order. All right? Now, what happens is the person goes out, and they do as much as they can of that, and then they wait for the event to occur. And then the time that the event is supposed to occur within comes, passes, and goes down to the other side. Or the economy they thought was collapsing has a recovery, whether it's real, real or false. We'll wait and see. But the recover, a recovery apparently comes. And it looks like the band is going to play again. Everything's going to be okay. Then they look at this huge expense. They look at all this crap that they have in their life. It doesn't contribute to their daily living. And they start to resent it. And they sell it on Craigslist where people like me buy it for pennies on the dollar. And say, thank you for taking the financial loss for me. I appreciate that. And then they just kind of go back to sleep in this melancholy world where they're never as happy as they were when they didn't know. And yet again, they're not as happy as they were when they were making a difference in their lives. Why does that happen? Because they don't own their own plan. 
So when it comes to pulling it all together, what you need to do is sit down and not make a checklist of your actions. Make a checklist of your priorities. What are the things that you most need to take care of? And I'll tell you, I can tell you what those are. You need to make sure that you keep a roof over your head. If that roof fails, you need to make sure that you have a plan of where to go next. You need to make sure that you can keep food on the table, that you can provide yourself clean water, and that you can maintain reasonable comfort, and that you do these things in a manner in which make your life better today, even if nothing goes wrong. And you should build your own priority list based around that. And this is a really easy thing to do, whether you realize it or not. You just need to say to yourself, what's my longevity with a roof over my head? How long can I make sure that I have this house, barring a physical disaster, something smashes it or blows it down or what have you, based on the cash that I have on hand and the assets that I have on hand? Lost my job, my wife loses her job, I have nothing. How long can I keep the roof over our head? And then you say to yourself, is that good enough? Is that number long enough? Am I comfortable with that? Is that sufficient for my life and my belief system? Then you say to yourself, how long can I provide food for us? And you say two weeks right now. Personally, not enough. That's got to go to a month. That, that I'll, I'll say there's your minimum. You decide how long do you want it to go. Where is that in the priority list? How much of the food is portable if you have to leave? You're growing things. That's wonderful. Are you producing as much as you want? Do you think you could produce more? You know, what, what are your goals there? And use that to create a priorities list. And then as resources become available, I have a little bit of extra money or I have a little bit of extra time or somebody's given me an opportunity to, to get something very, very inexpensively as far as materials go or somebody's even given me the materials or it's laying over there at a construction spot and I've talked to the foreman and he says I can have it and it provides half of a project and I only have to buy whatever it is. Then you go back to your priority list and say where does it, where is the highest priority that I can fit this material or this gain or this opportunity into. If the highest priority that you have at the time is keeping a roof over your head and you're very cash poor, maybe the opportunity gets passed up or maybe it gets passed on so you can financially gain from it. If your highest priority is making sure that you have more food available to you, but you're spatially limited, uh, maybe it's providing yourself a better storage solution so you can fit more food in because right now the problem isn't not being able to afford the food, it's being able to have a place to put it. So it's always that way. But just make sure you sit down and you focus on your priorities. And here's one of the best things that you can do for yourself. Run the lights out drill, as I call it. And what that means is you don't even have to shut the power off in the house. Just shut off all electrical devices. Let your refrigerator and freezer continue to run. But in your head, say that they're not. Go like that for, for 24 to 48 hours and ask yourself, what am I missing? And you'll start to find the things that you're missing. And also say to yourself during this two-day period or one-day period, the keys to the car don't work. They're lost somewhere infinitely. I can't go anywhere. I can't even walk to the store because the stores are closed in this hypothetical world. Put yourself into the situation when you have all the outs in the world available to you where I, I can't make this work or somebody's sick and I can just turn the lights back on, pick the keys up, take the kid to the doctor. Put yourself in a situation when nothing is wrong. That will lead you to your holes and start filling the holes that way. So that's the only way I can see to answer this and be true to the principle that you have to own your own plan. But the big thing I want to tell you is that the old cliche, Rome was not built in a day. It sounds like you're well on your way to where you need to be. All you need to do now is stop, take a breath, and relax for a moment. Don't get stressed about this. 
And just start always asking yourself questions when you spend money. Is this the best place for our money to go? What are our priorities right now? So don't focus on a checklist of, of action items. You'll derive the checklist of action items over time. Focus right now on a checklist of priorities. What are the most important things in your life to ensure that they will continue to be available to you and your family should systems of support directly or indirectly fail? What I mean by that is it may not be that anything's wrong with your neighbor. It may be a personal disaster. You've lost your job. You lose your job. Your wife loses her job. What's your longevity, and what do you want to shore up? Focus on the big things being the personal disaster and things like losing power and losing your home and having to go somewhere else. Those are the things that are most likely to occur to the individual. Um, if you do that right, everything else will just start to piece itself together. Let's go on and take another question. Okay, this one comes to me from a guy named Tom. And Tom says, hey, Jack, I hear you constantly talk about money being lended into existence. And I hear you explain it, but I don't get it. I just don't understand how we can loan money into existence. Where, where, where is that possible? Where does the new money actually come from? Is it just created out of thin air, like you say? And if so, how? Does a person at the bank simply enter a few keystrokes and all of a sudden the money exists? The answer to your question, Tom, is yeah, it does. That's exactly how it works. But I also realize that as, as hard as I try to explain things, I am not the end-all, be-all of explainers. And sometimes it helps to get a different perspective. So there's a great um, little course out there called Crash Course. It's about two hours long or maybe more by a guy named Chris Martinson. I'm going to play about six minutes of it for you right now that explains how money is created. We're kind of going in the middle of the show in here to a mil, uh, kind of a uh, mini segment of, of additional things. So I want you to pay attention to this because we're going to build on it as we go through the next couple points uh, with today's show. But here's Chris Martinson on how money is created. And if you want to hear the rest of the presentation, I'll provide a link for that at the uh, at today's show notes. If we want to have any hope of understanding all of the things that are going on in the financial world right now, we really have to start with understanding money and how it's created. So here we're going to explore the process by which money is created. Let me introduce you to John Kenneth Galbraith. He taught at Harvard University for many years and was active in politics, serving in the administrations of Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson. He was one of a few two-time recipients of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, clearly a pretty accomplished and stand-up kind of guy. Now, about money, he famously said, the process by which money is created is so simple that the mind is repelled. We're about to discuss that very thing. If you don't get this segment the first pass, don't worry, because money creation is a truly bizarre thing to ponder, let alone accept. It's actually a very simple process, but really difficult to accept. First, let's look at how money is created by banks. Leaving aside for now where this money comes from, suppose a person walks into town with $1,000, and luckily, a brand new bank with no deposits has just opened up. The $1,000 is deposited in the bank, and now the person has a $1,000 asset, their bank account, and the bank has a $1,000 liability, the very same bank account. Now, there's a rule on the books, a federal rule, that allows banks to loan out a proportion, a fraction of the money they have on deposit to others. In theory, banks are allowed to loan out up to 90% of what people have on deposit with them, although, as we'll see later on, the actual proportion is much closer to 100%. Nonetheless, because banks retain only a fraction of their deposits in reserve, the term for this process is fractional reserve banking. Now, back to our example. We now have a bank with $1,000 on deposit, and banks do not make money or make a living by holding on to it. Rather, they make their living by borrowing at one rate and loaning at a higher rate. Since any bank can loan out up to 90% of what they have on deposit, in our example, 
our bank wants to find somebody who wants to borrow $900. Suppose this borrower then spends that money by giving it to another person, in this case, his uh, accountant, who in turn deposits it in a bank. Now, it could be the same bank or a different bank, but that doesn't really change how this story gets told at all. With this new deposit, this same bank now has a fresh $900 to work with, and so it gets busy finding somebody who wants to borrow 90% of that amount, or $810. And so another loan gets made, and it gets spent and redeposited in the bank. And 90% of this new deposit is $729, which can get loaned out. And so it goes until we finally discover that the original $1,000 deposit has mushroomed into a total of $10,000. Is this all real money? Yeah, you bet it is, especially if it's in your bank account. Now, you might also notice here that if everybody who had money at the bank, all $10,000 of them, tried to take their money out at once, the bank would not be able to pay it out because, well, they wouldn't have it. The bank would only have $1,000 hanging around in reserve, period. You might also notice that this mechanism of creating new money out of new deposits works great as long as nobody defaults on their loan. Now, if and when that happens, things get tricky and that's another story for later. For now, I want you to understand that money is loaned into existence. Conversely, when loans are paid back, money disappears. This is how money is created, and I invite you to verify this for yourself. One place would be the Federal Reserve itself, which has published a handy comic book from which I actually drew this fine example. You can find a link to that on the website under Essential Articles. You may have noticed that I left out something very important here, and that is interest. Where does the money come from to pay the interest on all the loans? If all the loans are paid back without interest, we can undo this entire string of transactions in this example. But when we factor in interest, we'd suddenly discover that there isn't enough money here in this example to pay back all the loans. Clearly, that's a big hole in the story, and so we'll need to find out where that comes from. In doing so, we'll also clear up the mystery of where the original $1,000 came from. So, why did we spend the past five minutes studying the mechanism of money creation? Because in order to appreciate the implications of our massive levels of debt, you need to understand how that debt came into being. So there you go. It's a different explanation. It's actually the same explanation, but with a different person's words and thoughts behind it. All I want you to understand is that when you put money in a bank, it gets loaned out. And they don't necessarily loan your money out. They loan a fraction of your money out. But they don't really loan your money. It's still really there. They create new money by leveraging the existing money. So basically when Tom asked, do they just type it into a computer and then that money just springs into existence, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but yeah. So every time somebody puts money in a bank, it creates new money. And whenever somebody pays off their debt, it decreases money. All right, I want you to think about that. What that means is what I've said before. And that is that we can never be debt-free in this country under our current financial system. If everybody paid off their debt, including the government in this country, there would be exactly zero dollars left in existence. There is no money left in America. We don't have any money. We have currency, not money. Money has real value. It has a finite limit. It has a certain commodity value. It's worth more because of what it is if there's more of it. In other words, if I take a great big stack of $1 bills, a 100 of them, and I take a $100 bill, theoretically they have the same value. Why? Because they're a currency. If they were money, if they had intrinsic worth, the 100 ones would be worth far more 
than the one one hundred. The only thing that changes the value of our money is the little number that we put on it because it doesn't really exist. It's debt. It's a certificate for debt. Every dollar in your pocket is money owed is what it really is. And it's actually currency owed because there's no money underlying it. It is a Ponzi scheme. If you don't get the way I'm saying it, hopefully you get the way Chris Martin's saying it. And, uh, again, you can watch Chris Martin's entire presentation if you want to called Crash Course. I'll provide a link to that. The audio that you heard today came off of one of his YouTube videos. All right, let's move on from there because the next one directly correlates uh, with what you've just heard, and it's going to require us to go back to something I told you about a long time ago. You'll start to see the way that, like, I don't just say this stuff. I don't make this stuff up. These are pieces that come together over time, and you'll see one of them coming to fruition today. This one doesn't come from you guys. This comes from me. A little uh, research I was doing on the economy this week and, and found some things out. And, of course, the big news is that the government's bailout of some of these corporations may cost us nothing. We may end up profiting as a government, as a people, as a public, from loaning these clowns money. The bailout, the Bush bailout, and here's the thing. When it gets spun positively, it's going to become the Obama bailout. As long as it's still perceived negatively, it'll be the Bush bailout. We're talking about TARP funds here. We're not talking about the stimulus. So this is Bush that sent this money to Citigroup and AIG and Fannie and Freddie and all these other people. The bailouts is what we're talking about, not the stimulus. So I want to be clear. So the culprit and or, uh, uh, you know, uh, hero, depending on how you want to look at it, and I, I find that both is a culprit when you expl- I explain this, but was Bush. Bush did this. Let's be honest about that. So the Bush bailouts to people like Citigroup. Well, Citigroup just declared a profit of $4 billion. And they're paying more and more money back to the government and may soon owe the government nothing. And they'll be completely weaned off of government support. The government will get all of its money back, which means you, the people, get all your money back. See? It worked. Hold on. How much money did Citigroup get from the government? $45 billion. Citigroup is a bank. What does a bank do with $45 billion? Do they hold it or do they loan it? They loan it through fractional reserve banking methodology. And in Citigroup's case, they also loan it in credit card form. So every time they loan money and it's spent and it comes back into Citibank through a deposit, they loan it again and create more money. And then they loan it again and create more money. And so do you think they're going to pay it back? Of course they're going to have the funds to pay it back. If you give any bank 45, if you can turn $1,000 through fractional reserve into $10,000, what can you do with $45 billion? But yet they profited four. They're using it to pay back their loans. So there's why. So that's the underlying scheme. So as long as we get our money back, who cares? Well, here's why we should care. You put $45 billion, okay, and you end up creating, God forbid, if it keeps going that way, you can create up to $4.5 trillion. Okay? <laughs> that's a mind-staggering amount of money, and that's just the direct creation, because as the money is used to create new assets, they're leveraged as well, and they're fractionalized as well. So they create all of this money, and then what happens to all this money? It flows into the economy. And what does that create? 
inflation. See, this is what people aren't telling you. It's not just the money that the Fed pumps into the system. It's the money created with the money that the Fed pumps into the system through fractional reserve banking at multiple levels that eventually increases the M3 money supply that they don't tell us what it is anymore, the total amount of U.S. currency in circulation everywhere. They report M2, which leaves out the biggest assets, all right, and the ones that they want to hide the most right now. And we don't see how much money's out there until what happens. The economy begins to recover, and once the economy begins to recover, what happens next? Well, then the money starts to flow. All of this new money starts to flow. What happens then? The value of the money goes down because there's more money in circulation. So if you have more of something, supply and demand dictates that when you have more, the value decreases, including money. So it all looks really good as the inflation curve starts out slow and all of the companies out there are seeing their profits go up and their gross sales go up simply because their cost or their sale price is going up. But their cost is following it straight behind there. And eventually you get to a point where that hockey stick forms and you go into hyperinflation and then the underlying expense starts to outweigh the output and all of a sudden we're into round two of the crash. This is why I've been saying over and over and over again, false recovery, big crash on the other side. This is how these things come here. Now, Bringing back something I brought to you months ago. In fact, I brought this to you in December of 2009. The untold story. And no one's going to talk about this today. And it drives me crazy. No one's going to talk about this. And this is where we switch from uh, Ask Clown Bush to Ask Clown Obama, right? And if you haven't heard this show before, I call all presidents that we've had recently Ask Clowns. And there's good reason. You're going to see right now. This is a headline from the Washington Post. From uh, December 16, 2009, U.S. gave up billions in tax money to deal for Citigroup's bailout repayment. Let me read you part of this. The federal government quietly agreed to forego billions of dollars in potential tax payments from Citigroup as part of the deal announced this week to wean the company from massive taxpayer bailout that helped it survive the financial crisis. The Internal Revenue Service on Friday issued an exception to a long-standing tax rule for the benefit of Citigroup and a few other companies partially owned by the government. As a result, Citigroup will be allowed to retain billions of dollars worth of tax breaks that otherwise would decline in value when the government sells its stake to private investors. Instead of reading the whole article, this is how this works. Basically, while we were publicly holding Citigroup as, as, a, as a stockholder, because the money wasn't just given to them, they basically the government bought a big stake in Citigroup. Basically, they bought up shares of stock to fund them with money. So the government holds pieces of paper called stock that are worthless, and Citigroup holds pieces of paper called U.S. federal notes, which are also equally worthless if we really go into the underlying value. In fact, the stock in Citigroup is probably worth more than the cash that they got for it. Over time, Citigroup takes that money, loans it, loans it, loans it for fractional reserve, creates fake money out of thin air, and hands it back to the government saying they repaid the loan, when all they've done is print more money through their method of fractional reserve banking. On the other side of it, Citigroup's going to the Obama administration going, look, dude, um, we got these tax breaks right now. We could pay you back faster if you let us keep them permanently. So what we've done is while Citigroup is paying us back, 
we said, well, you owe the government the government's money. We're not going to tax the profit. We'd rather have the profit come back to the account receivable inside the Federal Reserve. We want our money back. Then we'll tax you. So we gave them a whole bunch of tax breaks, okay, while they owe us money. That makes sense, right? Well, what Citigroup did is they swung a deal with the Obama administration where once they paid back the government with the phony money out of thin air, they keep the tax breaks permanently. And they end up profiting well into the tens of billions of dollars and additional money they get to keep on the other side by not paying it in tax. So they get to cut their tax bill. They get interest-free loans that they pay back simply by loaning the money and taking the newly created money and using it to pay back the government. That's a Ponzi scheme. That's being done open and in the public. I will provide a link today to this article, again, from December 16, 2009. I brought you this story right before Christmas. I told you that it was going to get buried. I told you that it would be part of the perceived solution. I told you that when the solution came, they would say, Citibank is doing great. Look how well this worked out. And they would ignore this fact. That it's the billions we're giving up in tax revenue are simply being pushed across the table. So instead of paying it as income tax, city uses it to, to pay off their debt, but then doesn't have to pay it ever again. That's how screwed up our economy is, that this kind of crap is out in the public, and no one will tell you about it. And those of you, when I go into the economy, that say, you're just like Glenn Dagger, Rush Limbaugh. They're not telling you this either. They won't tell you this today. Because this puts a hole in the fact that, you know, the right wing can fix the problem. The left wing can fix the problem. No, both of them are part of the problem. This has been handed off from one president, conservative Republican, hard to say, over to a liberal Democrat, and they both handled it the same way, letting the banks do whatever they want. Now, with that in mind, with everything you've just learned, let's wrap up this segment. I want to bring a question from a member of our audience that I think is one of the most outstanding questions of the world because it's given me a way to tell you why you shouldn't use credit cards that I had never thought of before. Let's listen to this question. God, what a great question. Oh, what a great question. And some of you know where I'm going right now. Hello, Jack. My name is Bill. 54 years old. Bought my house 25 years ago. Paid it off 15 years ago. Um, been debt-free for the last 15 years. Car paid off, no credit card debt. My question is, reference uh, episode 391, uh, you make some statements about credit cards and how we feel about different financial issues and whether or not we should have credit cards. This brings me to the question. I hope I'm staying within time here. Anyway. I use credit cards on a regular basis. I maintain zero balance on every card. I pay it every month as I go. Do you think that that is supporting the system in a negative manner? Your input would be appreciated. I thank you much. Bye-bye. Oh, what a great question. Some of you know exactly where I'm going right now. Good for you for putting all the pieces together in advance, and you know what I'm going to say. The answer is yes, you're contributing to the system in a negative manner and that you're propping up and supporting the system of fake money creation by allowing your debt to look like an asset for a period of 30 days at a time. And what I mean by that is, let's say you go out and you're worried about your frequent flyer miles. So you spend, let's say, $2,500 a month and you put it all on your credit card to get your frequent flyer miles or your discount or whatever foofy flu bull crap that the credit card company waves in front of you like a bell to try to force you into more debt. 
the end of the month, you pay off the debt. You've held the money, and now you send it over to the credit card company, and you create a money flow. All right? Now, there's a couple different things that are going on here. Number one, the credit card company writes down in its, its balance sheet its accounts receivable as an asset. All the money that it is owed, so including your money that, that, you, that you owe them, even though you pay it off every month. Okay? They also want to create a factor of how much they can expect to receive. No credit card company expects to receive all of the money that it's owed. But people like you help bolster. You alone do very little, let's be honest. But 10,000 people out there doing that with one credit card company, one big credit card company, create the illusion that the money is safer than it is, the money owed. So if 10,000 people spend $5,000 a month, right, what are we talking about? At $500 million or $50 million, something like that. I, I'm going to let the math go. But there's a whole bunch of money that comes in every month that looks like it's being paid on the existing debt. It's not. It's money that, they're, that you're using short term. You're basically using their money for 30 days, and then, then you're paying it back, and you're just kind of creating a little circle, right? But when all of the people that are doing this are added up together, it makes that tremendously large accounts receivable look more safe than it is. So what do they do with it then? They call it an asset, and they hedge it by insuring it through companies like AIG. That creates a new asset or portfolio of hedges against default. Those are all lumped together and then insured again. And then we create the backdoor money creation system or the derivatives market. So you're contributing to the derivatives market. This is what else you're doing. Remember what I've told you about money. The government doesn't need to tax you to make money profitable to the government in taxation. All they need to do is make money flow. The more money you make flow, the greater you compound the problem. So if there's no other reason to not use credit cards, it's because you're becoming a willing assistant to a system of both taxation and indebtedness. And with that debt, even if it's not your personal debt, you know what it is? It's the national debt. It's the national debt because every time new money is loaned into existence, we increase the national debt. You're empowering the system to lend more money. Now, somebody's going to play devil's advocate here, and you're going to be right, and I don't have a solution for this. What you're going to say is, well, Jack, when you put money in the stock market, when you put money in the bank, when you do anything like that with your money, you're contributing to the same system. I'm sorry you've got me. You're right. The difference is, what do I gain by using the credit card, money, uh, credit card company's money for 30 days? I gain the potential to end up in debt because something goes wrong in the middle of it, and I'm not able to pay it back the way I thought I was going to be, right? And I gain 30 days' use of somebody else's money. When I put money into a stock, I have appreciation. When I put it into a house, I have appreciation. I have a lot more potential for gain. And I just think your money is, is more usable that way. Uh, look, folks, I've, I've gone on the record with credit cards over and over and over again, and I've told you what I think. No, you shouldn't use them, period. People want to know, why, Jack, why do I have to have a PayPal account to be a member of your member support brigade? Why don't you have a regular merchant account that just takes credit cards? Because I don't believe in credit cards. I take PayPal or I take cash, check, money order, or silver by mail. Okay? How you fund your PayPal account is your business, but there's a variety of ways to do that without a credit card. You can have a bank account with a bank debit card with a credit card, and you put it in there as a credit card. You can fund it by e-check. You can, you can transfer money from a bank account directly in there. There's a million ways to fund your PayPal account. I don't take credit cards at the Survival Podcast. It's up to you if you want to use a credit card to fund the method of payment that I actually do take. 
So it's congruency. Um, so I, I think you shouldn't use credit cards. It, remember what I said earlier, though. You have your own plan, your own rules, your own life. If you decide that that's what you want, then that's what you want. Live your life that way. But I'm warning you against it, and here's another reason to stay away from it. So let's move on from there, and let's go to something that's, that's actually quite a bit different for a while now. Uh, I'm going to take a listener call that you listen to here. I'm not going to have a big comment on this. Just is some suggestions from a guy about how to uh, increase the longevity of your vehicle so you buy less vehicles in your life. Uh, so go ahead and play that now for you. Hey, I'm listening to today's podcast, and I'm enjoying it. Thank you. I've heard several of yours. Um, you know, in the whole uh, idea of being independent, making things last is really important. About 10 or 12 years ago, a buddy of mine uh, showed me a, an oil additive made by an outfit in um, St. Louis called Schaefer's. I spend, oh, I don't know, 10 bucks a year on the stuff. My uh, little Ford Festiva just turned 230,000 miles, and it still runs great. I've used it in it for a long time. Anyway, I don't sell the stuff. I'm not part of the company, but it works well. I thought I'd mention it. Uh, I also like those, uh, what is it, NGK V-grooves. They last a long time, and they really seem to help out an old engine not load up with oil on the plugs. Uh, just two quick thoughts. Um, thanks. Bye. Okay, great. And I can't say that I've ever used this stuff, but I do believe I've heard of Schaefer's before. And uh, it sounds like a very inexpensive way. And, hell, for 10 bucks a year, what do you got to lose? Um, it seems to me that one of my uh, uncles, who I've kind of lost touch with, he was kind of a gearhead, a guy who I read a lot of his hot rod magazines back in the 70s and early 80s and was all into fixing up cars, used this stuff all the way back then. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think this stuff goes back that far. Anyway, I thought this would be interesting, a little tip there. And I, if you've used Schaefer's as an additive for your oil and you've had good results with it, Post uh, post a comment for us in today's show notes and let us know about that. So, again, not a commercial for Schaefer's for me either. Really not sure one way or the other, but sounds like this guy's been using it for a long time. And let's face it, the Ford Festiva is not exactly known as a vehicle that is designed for long-term use. For that to have over 200,000 miles on it, the guy's got to be at least maintaining the vehicle right. And beyond any additive, that's one of the things I wanted to bring home to you today. If you have any piece of equipment that you're going to rely on in the future, maintenance today is the most important thing. Make sure you're doing all the scheduled maintenance. And one of the really great things you can do is learn how to do that maintenance yourself. Even if you don't always do it yourself, do it yourself a couple times so that you know how. Stock up the materials necessary for that maintenance. And if you want to save time by paying somebody else to do it, that's fine. But at least you have the knowledge, should you ever, because of financial constraints, or because it's just not available, be able to perform that maintenance on your own. Uh, we've really lost that knowledge in this country. Let's go ahead and uh, take another one. So the next thing was sent to me by a listener, and it in, it's a listener we'll call Ted. And I won't give you his last name because, again, most people usually don't like that. But it's about the Icelandic volcano eruption and what it's causing over in Europe. And the uh, the title of the article, this is on MSNBC, is Volcano is Becoming a Major Business excuse me, a major business headache. Uh, train stations, hotels, car rental agencies jammed in key European cities. I'll read a bit of the article for you. London, the eruption of a volcano in a tiny isolated island nation of Iceland is threatening to turn into a major headache for businesses across Europe and around the world as spreading ash cloud closes more European airports. <clears throat> Airlines are already counting the cost of grounded planes, and there are growing fears about the transportation of food supplies and other essential goods should the flight disruptions persist for several days or longer. But there were also some early winners from the unprecedented situation, with rail, bus, and ferry tour operators all quick to lay on in extra services 
for stranded businesses and leisure travelers as as hotel rooms filled up. Airline shares took a hit as the Geneva-based International Air Transport Association estimated that the disruption is costing the industry some $200 million a day in revenues. I wanted to hang you on that one a little bit. The IATA added its forecast was conservative and the cost will mount further as carriers reroute aircraft for stranded passengers. Eurocontrol, the European Air Traffic Agency, said some 16,000 flights were canceled on Friday, more than half of the 28,000 that usually operate. Delay and cancellations will continue on Saturday as the ash cloud from the eruption of the volcano beneath Iceland's Eyjafjallajökull um, glacier moves to the east. That's the best I can do with that word. Um, the flight ban was imposed because of concerns about pilot visibility and jet engine failure from the ash. So, folks, if you're not familiar with why they would have to ground all these planes, when a volcano erupts, since all this really fine ash up into the air, which is basically microparticles of glass dust. When it gets sucked into a jet engine, it can basically freeze it and shut it down. So you start uh, with a situation where you can actually have aircraft falling out of the sky just because they flew through part of a volcanic ash cloud. So once the volcano erupts, they have to be very careful about where they allow aircraft to fly, the altitudes that they allow them to fly at, and things like that. And, of course, this ash cloud moves and morphs and changes shape over time. So there's got to be some areas where maybe we could fly, but we're not going to because we're not sure. So it grounds over half the planes in Europe from this happening. What are some of the other consequences of this? Well, I'll let you read the rest of the article for yourself, but one of the biggest things being affected here is goods that are perishable, according to the article, which includes, of course, things like food. So what we're actually having is disruptions in the food chain in Europe from a volcano, a relatively small volcano, by the way, that erupted in Iceland. Why do I bring this up? Because when we think of disasters and things that can affect us, we generally think very uh, closed-minded and very tunnel vision. We have a list of things we're most concerned about, and we have a list of things that are close to us, and we think these are the things that can affect us. Well, folks, we have a lot of volcanoes in the United States. Most of them don't erupt very often, but when they do, they kind of blow their top. Uh, Yellowstone National Park is sitting on top of one of the largest volcanoes to ever exist on planet Earth. Uh, it's erupted three times in the past, I think it's like two million years, about every 600,000 years or something like that. And they say, based on the timeline, it would be due to erupt again any time. Am I saying the volcano at Yellowstone is going to erupt anytime soon? No, what I am saying is that with a super volcanic event, or even a much larger volcanic event than what happened in Iceland, nowhere near approaching a super volcanic event, we can end up with global consequences, not just from grounding aircraft, but from climate change. Unlike the nebulous climate change that they just can't seem to pin down with CO2 being blamed for it, when you put a giant cloud of ash and sulfuric acid into the uh, atmosphere, it does something very reliably, and that is it drops global temperatures. Uh, in fact, there was a volcano that did that and caused what they called the year with no summer. The year was 1815 when this happened, which sounds like forever ago, but it's not that long ago. Uh, it's generally thought today that what happened was the eruption of a volcano called Mount Tambora on the island of Sumbawa uh, in Indonesia as part of the uh, Dutch East Indies at the time. I'll tell you what, what was it like that year? We had snow in the United States in June and July. Crops failed all over the world. It was also known as the year of poverty. Uh, people say that it was the worst famine of the 19th century. 
uh, and it caused, I mean, we think that things are so different today, but the main things that it caused were violence, arson, and looting in many European cities throughout uh, the, uh, the year. Things are not as different as we lead ourselves to believe from the past. So I brought this up, one, just to, again, drive home. And, again, it doesn't have to be a volcano. That's what I'm focusing on because that's what the story's about. But there are so many things that can disrupt the chain of events, and we don't realize the interconnectivity of the world anymore. How something like, have you noticed gas prices? I took a lot of heat because I said that once gas prices went above 3 bucks, it would never come back down. We had gas prices go down under 2 bucks in between then and now, and I was wrong on that one, and I... I missed the impact of the recession on gas prices. I just missed that. Sometimes I'm wrong, and I'll admit it. So I was wrong on that one. But I just paid 271 a gallon for gas. It's going to go above 3 bucks before summertime. What happens if it keeps going up? What happens if hyperinflation kicks in? What happens if gas prices go to $5 for regular? What if diesel's back up at $6 for regular? How long will that go on before the truckers say, you know what, we're not doing it? Fix the problem, or we're not driving what will that do to food supplies? And there's a million things like that. So please keep focused, again, on what I talked about earlier, your priorities of being able to feed, clothe, and shelter yourself. Those are the big ones. If you can eat, if you can stay protected from the elements, if you can provide yourself with clean water and a reasonable amount of energy for comfort, you can get through just about anything that we're going to go through other than maybe the chaos that, that, that comes up around us. So be able to defend yourself. Those are your priorities, and here's just another example of why. Now, people say, Jack, you're sensationalizing this. This isn't that big a deal. It's not. You're not going to see the European economy collapse over this, and you're going to see this ash cloud begin to dissipate, and we'll go back to business as usual. But we'll go back to business as usual, again, not learning the lesson of, well, what if it was a bigger event? What if it lasted for a longer period of time? And I'll tell you what, Europe is a lot better equipped to deal with these types of situations through the use of rail than the United States is. If this happens in the United States, if we ground half the aircraft in the United States for two or three weeks because one of the Cascadian volcanoes blows its top again, like Mount St. Helens did in the 80s, only a bigger one, we're nowhere near as equipped to deal with this. Most of our uh, rail transportation is on the East Coast. There's some inter, you know, intercontinental rail, but it's not, or not intercontinental, I guess, international rail out there, but it's not anywhere near the infrastructure that Europe has, especially for transporting people. We're nowhere near as equipped to deal with this as they are. We rely on uh, aircraft a lot more than a lot of the rest of the world does, and we also rely on trucks. Well, this happens big time. You also see fuel prices go up. So there's a lot of different ways that this can play out, but I just wanted to kind of Bring to your attention, once again, a real-world example of something going on that might affect you even though it's miles and miles away. Do you think the person sitting in Paris, France, was really that concerned when they heard, hey, there's a volcano in Iceland erupting? So what, right? And you would be right, I guess, in, in, in our little microcosm world to think that way at first. Next thing you know, the, the flow of goods and services is down, and you can't get on an airplane, and all the other stuff that you need can't get on airplanes, including pharmaceuticals. That's also mentioned in the article. Again, I'll include a link to this article if you want to learn more about it. But just thought, thought it was something I wanted to bring up with you today. Okay, this next one comes from Seed Savers Exchange in their quarterly that I just received. Um, so I can't give you a link to this because it's not online. This is in a uh, little quarterly newsletter as a member of Seed Savers that I get 
uh, sent to me. But the title of it is Who Will Feed Us? The subtitle, The Industrial Food Chain or The Peasant Food Web. So I get heat sometimes from people when I come down on Monsanto and Conagra and all of this industrial agriculture and they say, hey, you know what, I don't like it any more than you do, but it's a necessary evil. The world would starve without genetically modified crops. Even though the world didn't starve without genetically modified crops until very recently because genetically modified crops are relatively new. But the population is growing. You know, they're feeding the world. Monsanto feeds the world, Jack. They're not as evil as you say. Well, let me read this uh, this other sub-headline for you, and then I'll read the article. Peasants feed at least 70% of the world's population. Let me say that again. Peasants feed 70% of the world's population. Let me read the article to you. Again, I'm going to read this mainly because I can't direct you to it online. There is a prevailing mindset among policymakers today that the globalized food industry chain is man's best hope to feed the world in 2050 when an estimated 9.9 billion people will live on the planet. But a recent report by the Canadian-based ETC group entitled Who Will Feed Us? Questions for the Food and Climate Crisis turns this notion on its head. Arguing that 70% of the world's food is presently grown and consumed within national borders or eco-regions by peasants, loosely defined as small-scale food producers, mankind is better served by a web of peasant relationships, not a chain. The report states that 85% of the world's cultivated food is consumed relatively close to where it is grown. There are 1.5 million peasants on 380 million farms, 800 million more growing urban gardens, 410 million gathering from the forests and savannas, 190 million pastoralists, and well over 100 million peasant fishermen. At least 370 million of these are also indigenous peoples. Together, these peasants make up almost half the world's peoples, and they grow at least 70% of the world's food. Better than anyone else, they feed the hungry. If we already eat in 2050, we will need all of them and all of their diversity. The report defines the industrial agricultural model as a food chain with Monsanto on one end and Walmart at the other, a linked chain of agricultural input companies, seed, fertilizer, pesticides, and machinery, at the start that is attached to traders, processors, and retailers in the end. In the face of climate chaos, the industrial chain is uh, implementing a patent regime that prizes uniformity over diversity and enforces a technological model that costs more and takes more time to breed one genetically engineered variety than it does to breed hundreds of conventional varieties. The industrial food chain doesn't know who the hungry are, where they are, or what they need. The report reaches several conclusions. One, the industrial food chain is dominated by a handful of multinationals that have left half of the humanity malnourished and overweight. Two, at least half the world's population is badly served by today's food production systems. Peasants feed at least 70% of the world's population. Three, the commercial food chain uses an average of five breeds for each of five livestock species. Peasants protect 7,616 breeds of over 40 livestock species. Corporate plant breeders work with 150 crops, but focus on about a dozen. Peasants breed 5,000 domesticated crops and have donated more than 1.9 million plant varieties to the world's gene banks. 
The industrial food chain requires four units of energy to produce one unit of food. The peasant food web uses one unit of energy to produce one unit of food. The report also lists several recommendations for policymakers, including, among others, improving genetic diversity of plants, aquatic species, and livestock, eliminating industrial farming and fishing subsidies, and prohibiting measures that constrain the rights of peasants to save or exchange food genetic resources. In other words, they don't want people preventing peasants from saving their seed and trading their seeds with other peasants. Ironic, isn't it? The report is clear in its assertion that if the world is going to be able to sustain life for its inhabitants in 2050, it will need every peasant producing food and delivering it through regional distribution that gets it to the people who need it. And there actually is a link at etcgroup.org, and I'll put a link to the report itself in today's show notes. But that's the article out of Seed Savers. And I just thought that was another interesting thing to bring to you today. So I just want you to think about the reality that we just heard. 70% of the world is fed by peasants that do a lot of what they're doing by hand or with small machine operations. They're using conventional crops. They're using, uh, you know, things that aren't genetically modified. They're not relying on huge amounts of chemical fertilizers. They're saving their seeds. They're exchanging them with others. They're working with tremendous amounts of genetic diversity, and they're feeding the people closest to them. But what do we hear? We hear that without Monsanto and ConAgra, the whole world would just fall apart. Now, I want you to call me out here just a little bit, because I've said that Monsanto is controlling 80% of the world's uh, agricultural production. How does that jive with 70% coming from peasants and objections that I've heard before? Well, I think it jives this way. Monsanto is controlling 80% of the industrial agriculture in the world. And that's probably more than true with their licensing agreements. And if you look at the fact that if every farm in that industrial chain, is there any input from Monsanto at all, you'll find that there, there's generally a tremendous amount of input, especially from the seed and the chemical side. So that means I guess there's more hope than maybe I've been led to believe in the past, but it also tells me this. This is why Monsanto is trying to put these peasants out of business. When you have 80% of a market, it's really hard to get to 90% of a market. And if you have 90, it's impossible to get to 100 because of antitrust. There has to be enough competitors out there to avoid antitrust. So what can Monsanto do to grow its market now? There's only one thing it can do. It can put the peasants out of business, create more industrial farming, so that it can hold the same share of a larger market. And that's what you're seeing going on right now. And it's why you need a garden in your backyard. So you can be a peasant farmer too. I, I'm, I'm almost ready to print some T-shirts up that say I'm a peasant and proud of it, uh, it, it without it meaning what it means to the political politicos out there. Maybe a different way to angle it, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm a peasant farmer, not your peasant. I, I don't know. But I want to be counted among these people. Uh, I want to have some contribution beyond just my own household. I want my gardening to count for something. I want surplus and abundance so I can follow permaculture principles and then use that permaculture uh, surplus to provide abundance and surplus to a marketplace and reap a profit from it. And I'm going to work harder and harder on that in the coming years. I think it's something we really need to understand, that it's not just the giant tractor that feeds, that feeds the planet. In many ways, it's the guy that still goes out there and works the land the same way it's been done for thousands of years that's feeding the people closest to him that, again, he cares about. If you're a farmer with a big farm and you use equipment, don't think I hate you or don't dislike you or anything like that. I think it's important that we keep you in business, too. But I'll tell you what, there are better ways to do this. 
And if you're a farmer with 40 or more acres, the only thing that I'll ask you today is put aside one acre as conservation land and try it a different way. Try it the permaculture way. Build yourself an acre of a crop that produces year after year after year without so much input. Take one acre and decide instead of destroying the soil, you're going to build it. Do that with one acre, and I promise you, you'll start on your own from there to set aside more and more land to manage and use that way. Uh, it's, it's, a small, it's a small request. And if you have 20 acres and you're a small farmer, real small farmer, but you're still doing mostly conventional, do a half of an acre. Humor me. Give it a shot. Learn about the methods. Put in soil building methods, and you'll find that maybe there's a reason that 70% of the earth is still fed that way. Here's a question totally different on silver and gold. And the guy says, uh, I know you're moving or have moved to Arkansas from the Dallas uh, area. How would you or did you plan on transporting your coins? Keep them in the safe of the security in a dwelling is one thing, but traveling with them even in a safe seems risky. I'm asking because I'm going to be moving soon and trying to think of the best method to move my coins. Thanks, Matt. Um, it depends on how much we're talking about and how many trips. A thousand miles is a big difference for me. Um, I'm able to kind of parcel out my collection and move it a little bit at a time and uh, secure it. Uh, I can't say how. I, I, it would be stupid of me to say exactly how I transport and secure uh, my real money, my gold and silver. That would be dumb, so I'm not going to do it. But I'll give you some things to think about. One, if you have a very large, very expensive collection, especially of gold or highly numismatic-valued coins, the best thing you could probably do is use insured mail to mail it your, to yourself. So insure it for its full value. That'll cost some money, and it'll cost some money to ship it. But the shipper takes the risk, and the insurer takes the risk instead of you. That would be one way that you could do that. The other way, again, would be multiple trips. But the other side of this is, as long as you're not publicizing what you're doing, which is why I can't give you any more specifics on me, because uh, I'd be dumb if I did that, one of the big things about precious metal is how portable it is. I want you to think about how easy it is to transport $10,000 worth of gold on you right now. That's about 10 ounces. That's not a lot. Uh, that's, the, you know, 10, 10 silver dollar-sized coins made out of gold. So the portability is actually an advantage, and it's an advantage if you ever have to get up and go really, really fast, and you can only take a little bit of stuff with you. One of the things you can take with you is gold and or silver, with gold being a little bit more valuable for that because you can carry so much more value and so much smaller of a weight and size and easily concealable thing. So don't look at the portability as a disadvantage. Now, as far as your risk, if you're transporting anything more than a couple bucks worth of, uh, of precious metal, one of the big things you do want is you want it locked and you want it in a fire safe in case you get in a wreck and your vehicle would burn so it's protected. Uh, you'd want to hide it. You want to make sure you're armed uh, if it's at all possible during that transport. You want to go directly from point A to point B. and You don't want to publicize the trip. I, I can't be much more specific than that. But if I were going to be transporting, let's say I had to transport $20,000 worth of precious metals, I would use an insured shipper, and I would insure it, and I would have it transported that way. Uh, and that's probably the best way that you can do it, and uh, probably the safest way that you can do it. If I had to transport $20,000 worth of metals, and I had multiple trips to do it in, I would set up two secured locations, and I would mitigate the risk, transporting four to $5,000 in value at a time. Uh, but it's up to you how and where you do that, but you are right to be concerned. But the biggest thing is, when doing something like that, keep your mouth shut, look normal, make sure that it's protected, 
and make sure that even if you were in something like uh, a holdup or something, that it's in a place that's so inconspicuous and so much trouble to get to uh, that you would probably lose a lot of things, but not necessarily the uh, the currency itself. Uh, I guess there's always the chance that you'd have your vehicle stolen, but in a point in time where you're, you're transporting that type of value, uh, you shouldn't be away from your vehicle at all. And if that means a thousand miles, you take two people and you drive straight through, maybe that's what you have to do. It's up to you. You have to really think about this for yourself. And again, how specific do you want me to be with something like this? I can only be so specific. Okay, trying to finish uh, up today on kind of an upbeat note, I have some stuff I wanted to talk about. And this is something really cool. The guy that sent to me is named Sean. He's been sending me a lot of stuff. And I, I can't put all your stuff on Sean, but I will put this on. And uh, I think it's really cool. And it's called Window Farms. And it's available at a site called windowfarms.org. And right now they're not selling anything. They will be selling some kits in the future, mainly because they've had so many requests to put prefab kits together. But what they're providing right now is absolutely free information of how to build this stuff out of low-cost materials that you can get. And a lot of it is materials that are generally thrown away and can be recycled. And what they're doing is they're actually building vertical farm systems in Windows. So you have, and it's all based on hydroponics, uh, not aquaponics, but hydroponics. It's just plants, no fish. I think you could integrate some small-scale fish into this very easily, and I'm talking about something as small as maybe a 10-gallon aquarium, and this could really become a self-sustaining system in a really cool way. Um, That said, this is awesome. I have only looked at it for a little bit so far, but uh, I'm going to dig deeper into it today, and I might even do a whole show on it. But today I just wanted to let you know about it. It's called windowfarms.org, and I will put a link in today's show notes. And check it out. I really love what these people are doing. And what they're calling it is crowdsourcing. They're basically, instead of trying to put a one-size-fits-all solution in place, saying, everybody, take what we have, make it your own, do it, and then share with others what you're doing. That is the power of, uh, you know, kind of the social media outlet, Web 2.0. It's the power of Internet forums. It is the power that has really started to change the way people live through things like the survivalpodcast.com because it's not just about me telling you. It's about you telling me back and us sharing what works with each other. So I love what these folks are doing. Please go out, check out their site today, bookmark it. If you contact them, let them know you heard about, about them on the Survival Podcast. And let them know when you do that that I would like to hear from them because I would like to interview them on the show, uh, whoever's behind this. Uh, and there was a couple of gals behind it. There might be some other folks. But I'd like to get them on here for you so they can give you a better in-depth overview. So, Sean, thanks for sending that one. And that really is encouraging to me that uh, that we have something like that uh, going on out there and people working together on it. Uh, last question, and we'll wrap today up. I thought this was an interesting one. It would help people think outside the box. This is also a call-in question, so uh, let's go ahead and listen to the call-in from the caller and, and get his question so we can do to answer it. Hey there, Jack. This is uh, Spooky1 on the forum. I have a question concerning planting guava trees. Um, I found some good deals on some small guava trees. Now, I live in New Mexico, and they said the guava trees are zone 9 or 11. I'm just wondering... Can I plant it in New Mexico? And even if I'm not in the zone, what if I put it in a greenhouse? How can I get that done? Thanks. Well, good question. Let me give you the lazy answer, the semi-motivated answer, and the uh, Jack Spearco answer, and in that order. First of all, the lazy answer, looking up the USDA maps in New Mexico, you're looking for zones 9 through 11. And I don't know where you're at in New Mexico, but you have zones 5 through 8. So the answer would be no matter where you are, no, you can't grow guavas outside in New Mexico. You would need to use that greenhouse 
or at least container garden and move them into a greenhouse during parts of the year where they're threatened. That would be the lazy answer. Uh, the slightly more motivated answer would be, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you go ahead and build that greenhouse, put your uh, guava plants in large containers, keep them near your, your greenhouse, move them in whenever you need to, put casters on them, and that's the way that everybody handles citrus fruit in areas where they can't be grown, and that would be another way to Here's the Jack Spirico answer. The Jack Spirico answer is don't accept limitations without first exploring the limitations and how far you can push them. What do I mean by that? Well, when you asked me about guavas, a little alarm went off in my head and said 9 to 12. That doesn't sound right. Well, I guess there's many different types of guavas. So one of the things you could do if you want guavas is maybe look for a different supplier and a different type of guavas. There is a guava known as the Chilean guava. And I'll try to say this right. It's Mythus Eugenie Molene is the scientific name for it. But these are the, I guess, most famous guavas in the world. And uh, were once consumed by Queen Victoria herself in England and actually did okay in southern England during certain types of the times of the year. They are hardy from zone 7 through 10. Now, when I look at New Mexico, I see that the majority of New Mexico is, in fact, zone 7 or 8 south of the mountains. So if you're anywhere there, you may be able to grow Chilean guava there. If you're up at the higher elevations where you're at a zone 6 or 5, it may be very difficult. There's some things you can do, though, to push any plant and grow it in environments that are maybe maybe not best suited for it. If you have a hill facing the, the, the sunny side, the, the south side, so that it's always hit all day long with sunshine, and you take a heat-loving plant like guava and you put it in a, uh, a bed that is surrounded and covered with rocks that absorb heat, you can probably push at least one zone better on hardiness, as long as uh, the zone that, that it is hardy for has some frost or freeze. Okay, So if you go from a place where there's zero freezes, to a place where there are freezes and you go that zone crossover, that may not be possible. But if you have a plant at all that can get through frost and freeze, you can usually do one zone just by a sunny-facing uh, structure and using a lot of rocks to retain heat. So what that would mean is if we went to Chilean guavas, you should be able to grow uh, Chilean guavas up to zone 6 if you have an ideal land position or if you're in Zone 7 or higher in New Mexico. So you need to look up the USDA map yourself and see what it is. But the other side of this, no matter what you have, yes, you can do it with greenhouses. One thing you may have to do, though, is actually provide some heat to your greenhouse with a plant like guava if you're up there in, like, Zone 5, uh, where you get down to 10 below zero at times, or colder up in those New Mexican mountains. But if you're throughout the rest of the state, odds are you can probably pull this off um, I would also wonder about the guavas that you found, and um, are they really zones 9 through 11, or does somebody just say that? What are the source? If they are indeed Chilean guavas, you should be able to pull it off down to at least zone 7. So there's the uh, Jack Spirico in-depth research answer for you on that problem. Hopefully it gives you a solution. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. And folks, remember why I focus so much on being able to feed yourself in agricultural systems. We say in America every day, I have to keep a roof over our head and food on the table. There's a big reason that we say food on the table. More than self-defense, we need to eat. I've said this before. How many physical altercations have you been in? How many fights have you been in your lifetime? And if you're an older person, forget everything that happened before you were 20 years old. 
And then ask yourself another question. How many times have you had to feed yourself? Being able to feed yourself and keep that roof over your head was important. That's why you're smart with your investments. That's why you're smart about what you put into your mouth so that your health stays strong into your old age. I've even heard from quite a few vegetarians recently to the point where it gets annoying. I've had vegetarians, and I, sometimes I feel like you vegetarians are like a recovering alcoholic. It's one thing that you don't drink anymore, but boy, you just feel the need to convert the rest of the world into your way of thinking. Uh, my way of thinking is this. If God didn't want me to eat meat, uh, animals, he wouldn't have made them out of meat. Uh, and with that, I will go ahead and sign off. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Makes you wonder where your mother went. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter. Get spent